0: Good morning. morning. You know, we, we think of that song as a children's song, Jesus Loves Me. But when you begin to think of why we are here, not only in this place, but why we exist at all, and the question of why, the answer is because Jesus loves us. And so in that simple song, you have some of the most profound thoughts ever written down. That because Jesus loves us, we're here. Because Jesus loves us, we get to experience His grace and His mercy. And so Jesus loves us. is such a wonderful and wonderful thing to walk up here to. And uh, thank you, Isaac, for leading our songs today. And today we're going to be studying uh, an extension of, of Jesus' love. The subject today is the sublime lesson in Christian doctrine of grace. And what does it mean, God's infinite grace? And I'm, re- I'm reminded of a story of C.S. Lewis. and C.S. Lewis had uh, went to a British conference. And the, the conference was comparative religions. And, and they were all examining all the different religions that are out there and, and kind of stacking them up. And, and he walked in into a discussion and they said, what is the distinctive teaching of Christianity? What is the one thing that delineates it from all the other religions? And they were arguing over this and that, whether it was the incarnation or the resurrection. And so C.S. Lewis walks in and he says, what's all the rumpus about? Of course, he had a good English accent. And they said, we're trying to figure out what the distinctive doctrine of Christianity is compared to all the world's religion. And he said, that's easy. It's God's grace because when you compare all religions to christianity they don't have grace in them they just don't whether you're talking about buddha's eightfold path to enlightenment or whether you're talking about the jewish conception of earning your way to heaven the same is true in the muslim religion But within Christianity, we have this distinct doctrine that you're not saved by anything that you do. That it's actually the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. And that doctrine, when you begin to understand it, changes everything about who you are, it's transformative. I recall the words of Charles Spurgeon who said this, Grace puts its hands on the boasting mouth and shuts it once for all. Once you understand that it's God's grace that saves you, really you can't stand up anywhere and boast about anything. And boy, do we like to boast. In my time, I've boasted. In my time, I've heard plenty of people boasting, especially when it comes to what they know and who they are. But when we begin to think about the profound grace of God, it humbles us. In fact, James says it like this, God resists the proud, but giveth grace to the humble when you begin to understand how profound God's love is, why you're here, and how you've been saved from the depths of sin, not by your own works, but by the saving work of Jesus Christ, you look at yourself different and you look at each other differently. And then you look at your God differently. Because it is by grace You're saved. And Ephesians chapter 2 is the lesson and the passage that we're going to study this morning. And before we get into it, before we can understand the grace of God, before we can understand the true blessing that is salvation, we have to understand the fundamental problem that we're in. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 really describes the situation that all of us find ourselves in as human beings. And it's that we're dead. We're spiritually dead. I'm reminded of a story of a man in, in 1994. And listen to this. This is really interesting. Peculiar. Peculiar. In 1994, an Ohio court declared a man by the name of Donald Miller Jr. dead. He had been missing for several years, and his wife needed to formalize his death to qualify his daughters for Social Security benefits. And after 20 years, get this, of being presumably dead, He showed up on the front lawn of his former wife's home, and then he began to have to testify in court that he was truly alive. Can you imagine being in that situation? That you had been declared legally dead, and now you stand before a judge testifying to your own existence. That's what happened to Donald Miller. And in fact, he was standing before the same judge that declared him dead. And listen to what the judge said to him. Unfortunately, there is no mechanism within the law to reverse a declaration of death. In fact, he says, I don't know where that leaves you, but you are still deceased as far as the law is concerned there was nothing that the law could do to change his predicament he was declared dead and now he stood before a judge trying to testify of his own existence And you know that's kind of where we are that when we look at our lives in light of God's law we find ourselves dead According to the law, we are dead. And that's where Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That when we look at our situation, when we find ourselves outside of Christ, outside of that relationship with God, when we're living according to our own rules, we find ourselves dead in trespasses and sins. Because it is that sin that separates us from life. What is the definition of death? James 2 tells us, it says, For as the body is without the spirit, is dead. And so when we are separated from God, we are separated from life. And so what our sins do is that they separate us. They create this chasm between us and God. And no matter what we can do, No matter how we stand up in court and say, hey, I'm still alive, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In fact, it says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So spiritually, we find ourselves as the walking dead. We're spiritually dead inside when we're outside of Christ. That's what Paul tells us. Because as Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden His face from you. When we are estranged from God, when we're separated from God, we're separated from life. Where did life come from? Life came from God. And the same is true spiritually. But sometimes we like to think about ourselves and we say, "Well, wait a minute. I'm a good person." And I know that there's good people here. I know that there's saved people here. I know that there's redeemed people here. But the problem is is that the law of God is indivisible. It says, in fact, James tells us the problem. He says, in James, he says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. The law of God is indivisible, and so if you stumble in one point of the law, you break the whole law, he says. Does that mean that every sin's equal? Is it the same to kill somebody and to tell a white lie? I don't think so. But if you break one part of the law, no matter how small it is, you stand condemned before a holy God. Because the law is indivisible. And we find ourselves all in that situation. For all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. There's one thing that I can confidently say, no matter how saved you are, I know you've been a sinner. I know you've been estranged from God. I know you've been dead in your trespasses and sins. Why? Because I've been there too. And I still wrestle with it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul talks about the law. And he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. He goes on in Romans seven eleven For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me. By it, it killed me. Paul says, I know the law, and the law is what convicts me of my sin. That's how I know I'm a sinner. When I look at the law, I know I haven't kept it. And then we find out that there's nothing in the law that can now save you, you've already broken it. That's why Christ is imperative. Because it says, when Jesus spoke of the law, he said, think not that I have come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy them. I came to fulfill them. And where I lack in the law, and where I fall in the law, and where I can't keep the law, guess who kept it for me? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Messiah, He kept the law, and it's because of His life, it's because of His obedience, it's because of His gift, it's because of His life that I can live. But I first have to recognize who I am before a holy God. One great philosopher said it like this, the purest of heart is precisely the one most willing to compromise, comprehend his own guilt, guilt most deeply. That when your heart is pure, you recognize your own sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. What else does it say? Verse 2, and we once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That before Christ, we walk according to what values? The values that the world has. The values of the world says, get over on somebody. The the law of of the world is the law of whatever you can get away with. And that is the way of the world. John said it, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And yet the world competes for us. Competes for our allegiance. But we also walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Isn't that quite a title? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the devil. He's talking about the enemy. He's talking about the lies. Because that's who the devil is. The devil has a whole book of lies. You've got a book of truth, and you've got a book of lies. And it says in John 8, 44, that, that, that the devil is the father of lies. And he's the first murderer, too. But that's what he works with. And what he's out doing is trying to tell everybody lies. And a lot of times we just sign right up for it. But we can't see the world as it truly is. We walk according to the flesh, it says. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, just as others. When you don't walk according to the Spirit, all you have left is what? The flesh. And when we're outside of Christ, we're walking according to the flesh, it says. Even our perspective is skewed. Even the way that we think is distorted. Paul said in Ephesians 3:18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them and because of the hardening of the heart. Do you find people in the world with hardened hearts? Do you find people in the world who are done loving people? Do you find selfishness in the world? Do you find alienation? Do you find separate? Is that what you find in the world? It is. And before we can know the grace of God, we have to understand how bad we got it by ourselves. And thank goodness Paul's letter didn't stop there. Because you get to verse 4 and it's some of the, there's two words in verse 4 that are some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture because it says, here's our situation. We're living in sin. We're living in flesh. We're living according to what we want to do. And then it says, but God. That even though it's going that way, God steps in. Even though I don't love Him, even though I don't want to follow Him, even though I'm incapable of doing it. It says, but God, who is rich in His mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. (coughs) Think about that. That even though I stand condemned, even though I am a sinner, it says that God had mercy on me through Christ Jesus but god think about that statement but god if you think about it it's the reason why there's something rather than nothing right there wouldn't be anything at all unless there is god there would be nothing but god it would just be something it wouldn't be someone if it wasn't for god and there we go back To our first thought, Jesus loves me. But God who is rich in His mercy. Because God makes the provision in Himself, in Christ Jesus, for my shortcomings. And not only does He make up for my shortcomings, He pays the whole way. The ticket's already been bought. He's bought the ticket with His obedience, with His act on the cross. He died for your sins. So it leaves it to us to receive that gift. And it says that that riches of His grace is continual. In the ages to come, that He might show His riches of His grace, that God's grace is unfolding. And we haven't even seen the end of the show We're just now beginning to taste it in this life with salvation. And that in the next life, it's still unfolding. We're still getting to know God. We're still getting to understand how deep His mercies are. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved through faith. Well, does that mean everybody's saved? Because that don't seem right either. It says, through faith, that our re- response to this grace, this gift and that's what grace means, unmerited favor it's a gift. You know what? When I go home for Christmas, there is a wonderful time where we sit around the, the room and we exchange gifts. It's wonderful and I know what my parents are going to give me they give me the same thing every year it's an envelope it's a card my dad writes a very thoughtful message to me and guess what's in it every year a hundred dollar bill and I'm always grateful that hundred dollar bill isn't less than it was 10 years ago it's just as much and I thank him for that gift I say thank you for that gift But the one thing that I don't do after that I open up that card and look at that $100 bill and put it in my wallet is say this, I've earned it by opening up the card. Wouldn't that be an insult to him? Well, thank you for the card, Dad. I I opened up the card, I opened up the envelope, and I put it, I earned that $100 bill. Would I be a fool to do that and to say that? In the same way... God has given us this gift of salvation, which is beyond anything that we can even begin to imagine how valuable it is. It's more than $100, it's your eternal soul. What shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That you are worth more than all of the things in this whole world. Your soul is, because it's eternal. And God gives you your soul back. God saves you from an eternal hell. And you have to receive it through faith. You have to answer. You have to open up that envelope and receive the gift of God. And the Bible tells us what that basic response is. And it's not that we earn it. It says through faith that you believe in what He says. That you believe in who He is, and that you repent of your sins, confess Him, and you're baptized. And baptism doesn't earn you anything. In fact, have you ever seen someone get baptized? When they get baptized, they don't even do it themselves. Someone else does it to them, right? It's a completely passive act of obedience to God. And nothing about baptism earns you salvation. You're just receiving that gift through faith. Paul said it like this, Buried with Him in baptism in which you are also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. The same God that raised Jesus from the dead is the God that will raise you from the waters of baptism to new life. And once you begin to understand the grace of God, you can no longer look at someone and say, I'm better than them. You can never go and say to God that I've earned this or that I'm good enough. No, because you recognize the gift that you've been given through Christ. And it changes you. One of the great theologians talked about something called cheap grace. And it's when we receive the gift of salvation, yet we don't fully recognize it and we don't turn our lives over to to the Lord. And he says something about it. He says, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. When we begin to understand how powerful and how beautiful and how blessed we are through the grace of God, it changes everything that we are and do. We begin to see the world so very differently. And in fact, Paul concludes this section of scripture by saying that now you are the workmanship of God. Think about that. The workmanship. You've been created in Christ Jesus. You are His creation. You are His creature. And you're His masterpiece. And He's working in your life. And He's faithful to to commit that and and to complete that work in you. And not only are you His masterpiece, but just like His artists do, He signs His name on your life. And you get to wear the name of Christ. they were called Christians first at Antioch. This morning, if you don't know the grace of God, it's a wonderful blessing because at night, you can rest your head having the full assurance of salvation. You don't go to bed at night saying, have I done enough? You go to bed knowing that Jesus has done it all for you. That's what we understand with the grace of God. No other place can you find the full assurance of salvation than in Christ and in His redemption and in His grace. And if you don't know it this morning, there's no better time than now than to, than to confess Him, than to repent and to give your life over to God. He is the source of your life. And as long as we run according to the world, as long as we run according to what we want, we live a life alienated and dead. But when we come to Christ, we come to life. And if you haven't done that, we're going to sing a song this morning to encourage you. Or maybe you're someone who's let the world get into your life and you need Uh, prayers of forgiveness or of strength or you need a prayer of healing, whatever your need is, we're going to sing this next song to encourage you. So won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.